Blog Talk Radio. Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the state with parishes, not counties, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the state where Arkansas Post was established by Henry Detanti in 1686. Tonight, we're looking at the case of Scott Peterson who was convicted and sentenced to death in 2004 uh, for the Christmas Eve 2002 murders of his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son, Connor. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. How are you doing tonight, Michael? I'm doing pretty good, you know, had a little bit of health issues this morning, but as always, you know, ready to go. Uh, Pretty excited about this one, you know, Scott Peterson, obviously, I was a little bit younger, I believe that it was 2003, 2004, so I was around the 13, 14 age when this really got cooking, but I do remember bits and pieces about the whole situation And it's definitely interesting. I mean, of course, you know, another situation where a gentleman's uh, life hangs in the balance as far as this goes. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, he's on death row now in California. Of course, you know, we mentioned before, if Texas is the interstate, then California is like a back road somewhere with 15-mile-per-hour speed limit (laughs) when it comes to the death penalty. But – you know, Pretty much. situations like that happen. Yes. Uh, yeah, California has, uh, they have always been relatively slow. Uh, this case is an example. Uh, his direct appeal was not filed until 2012. He had been convicted in 2004. Now, part of that may have been preparation of the trial transcripts. Uh-huh. And those kind of administrative things may be what takes so long in California because his trial was, I think, around six months. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I go back to last week's episode where I mentioned, you know, that was probably the first case since OJ that was on that level. But this was probably that I remember the first high-profile case. Since mm-hmm. OJ, 
as far as this goes. So, you know, it's another case where, you know, a lot of eyes are on it. You know, I guess you could label it, uh, I believe they call it media trials. I guess you couldn't label it a media trial because there was a media frenzy around this because of the gruesome and uh, terrible nature of the crime he committed. I mean, you're talking about uh, killing an unborn son and your uh, pregnant and your wife. Right, right. Uh, This was when social media was also starting to pick up. So uh, that element is in it. But I think a, a lot of it had to do with the victim. Uh, but then there was the affair with Amber Fry uh, and Scott's demeanor and some of his statements. Uh, you know, he did a, he doesn't disclose to police about the affair, but then once he gets busted, he goes and sits down for an interview with Diane Sawyer and a couple of other reporters in the Modesto market, and he claims Lacey knew about it and she was fine with it. Which I'm going to call BS on. Because I don't know any woman who's eight months pregnant about to have her first child that's going to be fine with her husband stepping out on her. I mean, I've had pregnant friends who were basket cases just suspecting or thinking, even though there was nothing going on, and they were back. Even if your wife isn't pregnant, even if your wife isn't pregnant, shoot, they don't want you going out on them, let alone, I'm sure it gets even worse right. when they are pregnant. Right. And, I, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I, a, lot of, a lot of women become I, self-conscious whenever they're pregnant. Yeah. I mean, I would not be fine with it, but his ass would be out the door. Right. <laughs> you know, out on this, you're going to be living, you're going to be homeless, bud. Go live with your girlfriend. See how long she'll put up with your ass. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And then, shoot, uh, in a lot of these cases, a lot of them didn't even know that they had girlfriends. So as soon as they find out about the woman that you're cheating, you know, on uh, for them, they're gonna, they're probably gonna dump your ass too. mm -hmm. Mhm. Some women do, some women don't. You know, it 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 depends on. You know, everybody's got to make the decision that's right for them. And unfortunately, you know, some women trust and believe that somebody's going to change. And some women have lived long enough to know they're not really going to change unless they damn well want to. And Absolutely. given the fact that early in their marriage, there was some sort of infidelity I think Lacey probably would have figured he's not going to change. Right. But I think the aspect that really draws attention and keeps attention is why would he do this? Well, I mean, and I he's such we, an enigma. I'm not sure. <clears throat> he is such an enigma. Him, I, think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. Whenever we were talking, I'm not sure, like I said, whether we were on the air, but I think he hit the nail on the head. He wasn't ready for a child. You know, he may not have even wanted to be married. He still wanted to be a playboy and go out and have these girlfriends. And, you know, this child and being married was going to screw that up. Right. 
And I think getting uh, getting a little ahead into Scott, over over the course of his life, he had demonstrated a tendency to be uh, kind of restless. So he would uh, pursue a, a career and then decide he didn't like it and he would have to change. Or he went to Arizona State intending to be become a pro golfer and then decided he didn't like Arizona State, so he switched to community college back in California. Um, uh-huh. So I, I think maybe marriage, this was the same thing. You know, he, he didn't want to be married anymore. He certainly didn't want to be a parent. He wanted that free, carefree life of a bachelor. So Right, I mean... that. The thing is, and, you know, the sad fact is, and the reason why I call this sad is because it's completely ridiculous, but I feel like if Lacey had never gotten pregnant, Lacey would probably still be alive. Um, Yeah, there's a there's a chance, although it depends. You know, like I said, he's an enigma, and he's never going to say what really happened or admit any culpability. And right. so, I mean, he may not have wanted to lose everything in a, in a divorce. True, true. So there was uh, no So even if she wasn't, no, they had gotten married. I mean, when they got married, they didn't, and they didn't have, uh, you know, a whole lot. Um, I'm wondering if he believed Lacey had inherited money and uh, uh, an interest in a trust from her grandfather Uh that she would get at age 30. And I'm wondering if Scott thought as her widowed husband, he would get that money if she was gone. And there was a, there was a dispute between Lacey's family and Scott over the proceeds from the house, uh, proceeds from some of Lacey's belongings, and life insurance policy that Scott uh-huh. had on Lacey. And her mother ended up uh, prevailing in court on that. Uh, but, uh, so, I, you know, I don't know, but he's an enigma. I don't. We'll never yeah, know for sure. We can only speculate. He's definitely something, and I mean, you look at it, and like I said, the gentleman. Is, I mean, I had honestly, I had thought that they were a wealthy couple. Uh, I'm not sure why I had believed that, but I thought they were actually a, a rather wealthy uh, set of individuals. But uh, I, you know, it's definitely interesting to sit here and look. And what went on in this dude's mind to, you know, lead him to some of the terrible, terrible decision-making that he uh, used in this. But, you know, we'll get into that. Let's go ahead and get into mm-hmm. things because we do have quite a bit to cover here. Let's talk, start off talking about the uh, the players and all this. And Lacey and her unborn uh, son, Connor, let's uh, start out with them. Well, Lacey was born Lacey Denise Rocha in Modesto, California. Uh, she had an older brother, Brent. Her parents divorced when she was one, and her father remarried. 
and she had a younger half-sister named Amy. Uh, Lacey came from a really close family. She and Amy were close. She and Brent were close. She was close to her father and his family, close to her mother. Her mother was, um, uh, I don't think her mother remarried, but her mother had a long-time significant other named Ron Gransky, who was a father figure to Lacey as well. And um, everybody described Lacey was the center. She was the, the heart of the family. She made everybody happy. She brought everybody together. She was always smiling. She was always taking care of people. Um, just and, and when you look at the pictures of her, the smile with those dimples, she was uh-huh. such a gorgeous, gorgeous young woman. And um, she, she was a substitute teacher in Modesto. She and Scott bought a house there in... Uh, 2000 or, or thereabouts. His parents helped uh-huh. them buy the house. Um, and in California, real estate is, you know, is it. Yeah, it's ridiculously uh, expensive and it's also a status symbol more so out so there. If, if you country. own a house in California, that, that increases your net worth uh, pretty significantly. Uh, they also lived their means, so they were making more money, her as a, a substitute teacher and him as a fertilizer salesman, which is so, uh, seems so appropriate for him. Um, yeah. That, um, so and and their, their expenses were relatively low, you know, relatively low. Uh, so they had savings. She would have had, as a, a school employee, she would have had uh, retirement and things like that. So, uh, right. you know, they were just they uh, enough doing, coming. They weren't doing rough. Right. And they they were comfortable. They weren't worrying about paying the electric bills or, or water bills or anything like that. They could, you know, they could support themselves. And um, money was not a, a stressor in their relationship. Right. Right, absolutely And then Connor, Connor was due to be born on February 10th. That was Lacey's due date. Um, and, you know, unfortunately she passed away, died, was killed uh, before he could be born. Right, and, you know, he was pretty close to being born, correct? I believe you had said that uh, yeah. they were within uh, two months, right? So she was seven months He along? was. It was December 24th, so I would say probably about seven weeks was her due date. Right. He could have basically came out and he would have, uh, well, you know, uh, you know he would have been fine. It's, it, as a as a kind of a, a an example, if she had gone walking on December twenty fourth, and the walking had put her into labor, and she had delivered Connor at that point, he would have survived. Right. Because he would have only been about seven weeks premature, which isn't 
you know, it, which is in with them the realm of uh, most development is completed. Yeah. I mean, I right. think I was like six weeks premature. Mm-hmm. And, so, but most of the development is completed, so the lungs are the lungs can work properly. Uh, the only thing you have to worry about is baby's weight and size. So let's talk about the let's talk about the man who you know committed these heinous crimes, Scott Peterson. Obviously, a lot of people you know feel like they know a lot of things about him. What can you tell us about Scott? Well, he was the youngest child. His mother and father uh, had prior relationships and marriages and had older children with other people. And as I understood it in reading his you know, biogra- biographical information in some of the briefs, he was the only child of his mother and father's relationship. He's uh-huh. got uh stepsister and stepbrothers through his mom and dad. But he's the only child within Lee, ja- uh, Jacqueline, and Scott Peterson. Now, he did grow up with one of his half-siblings. Right. Um he was well loved. His parents were successful by the time he came along, uh, or, or by the time he was developing. His parents had a successful business. They lived in nicer houses. They had nicer things. Uh, they were able to take vacations. Um, you know, he was able to have whatever he wanted, and his parents, throughout his life, has all have always supported him. You know, they gave him, they helped him start a restaurant with Lacey in San Luis Obispo after they got married. They helped him buy the house. They they helped him change schools when he got bored with one school and decided to go do something else. Uh Um, So they were a very loving, caring, but they're all somewhat odd. Because so the whole family they are very, they, they're, there's like a very, a very flat emotional affect mm-hmm. from all of them. And Lee Peterson, uh, the father, believes that's due to him growing up in Minnesota. Right. And, you know, probably, you know, Scandinavians in Minnesota um, can be kind of out there. <laughs> cool. <laughs> they run, they don't run hot and cold. They run cool. Right. Um, they're not very emotional. They're not very demonstrative. They're not very uh, expressive about emotions and feelings and hugging and affection and things like that. Um, right, absolutely. So, the kind of the manly men. Manly men and manlier women. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> the Scandinavian, Scandinavian women are equally no-nonsense. And I don't mean this as a, a criticism or anything of Scandinavian 
culture. Uh, but they are. They're very, you know, uh, just the facts. And, you know, you move on. They're not emotional people. Except maybe right. anger. Definitely. Definitely. So, we've talked about Scott and his family. Let's talk about, you know, almost it seems like a polar opposite from what I understand in Lacey's family. They were quite loving, supportive, you know, things like that. Correct. They were, and they were very, very close. Again, you know, Lacey was the center of that family. She was the one that got uh-huh. people together. Um, when you see their, if you look on the Internet, you can see videos and, and different things and the different news programs have showed uh, brief videos. But she was always smiling, always happy. But I think that she was stoic in one sense that whatever was going on in her life, she did not talk to other people about it. Everything was fine. Everything was, yes, she was happy. I think that that, she put on that brave face, and I don't think she really talked about any issues that she she may have had in her marriage with Scott. So if there was something beneath the surface, we're never going to know because it wasn't something that she talked about. Right. So, you know, we've mentioned both families. Now let's get into kind of, I'm going to label her the mistress. Even though, you know, that sounds like a derogatory term, because honestly, when Amber found out, I do have to say I have a lot of respect for the way in which she acted. So definitely don't misinterpret. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, the mistress, Amber. Let's talk about her. What do we know about Amber other than the fact that she really was the key cog in allowing uh, Scott to be, you know, caught and prosecuted for this? Well, she she didn't really, I don't think her contribution was so much in, in allowing him to be prosecuted because really when it gets, when you get down to it, the affair is not proof that he killed Lacey. It certainly right. is a potential motive for uh, Lacey's murder, but um, she was a single mother in Fresno. She met Scott through a friend of hers. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not going to mention people's names, but if you're familiar with the case, you're familiar with the people who were involved and uh you know, I don't want to go, I guess, directing attention to somebody, but this young woman uh, had met Scott and co-worker of his at, like, it's like a convention type thing in Southern California, I believe. And she had an uh-huh. interesting, you know, evening with him, and they were a little flirty, and there was some double entendre, and um, what some of their fellow dinner guests thought might be a little inappropriate between a married man, Scott, and a woman who is engaged to be married to someone else. Uh, But they had a nice evening, but Scott led her to believe that he was single. 
and that he was looking for someone to be in a serious relationship with. Right. And so she said, I have this friend, Amber, but she's been hurt so badly before, and I don't want somebody to do that to her again. You've got to swear you're not going to hurt her. And, of course, Scott promised Boy Scouts honor that he wasn't going to hurt her. And so uh, through that friend, he got the uh, introduction to Amber. And, of course, he courted her. He invited her out, and they went out to dinner. Uh, He was very uh, romantic. I think he has a sex addiction, and we'll get into Uh why I think that a little bit later. But um, it was very physical, but it was also he, you know, picked her child up from school, and when she got home from work, he was cooking dinner for everybody. And he attended a couple of uh, holiday parties with her. Of course, what she Uh didn't know is that in Modesto, Lacey was attending holiday parties alone because Scott said he'd gotten called to go to San Francisco for a business meeting. Right. And he had led her to believe. He had told her he was married, right, at one point, and he had led her to believe that his wife had uh, passed away, correct? Well, not exactly. The friend who introduced her to Scott found out that he was married. He told Uh the friend that he was married, but he wasn't married anymore or something along those lines. And then he said, look, I'll tell Amber. When he gets around to telling Amber, he said he lost his wife. This is on December 9th. Uh Uh-huh. He said, lost her. Like, I put her somewhere, and I don't know where I put her. Oh, lost. Kind of like missing, if you want to get down to it. He didn't say she was dead, and he didn't elaborate on if she was dead, how she might have died, or anything along those lines. But he did apologize to Amber for lying to her, and she forgave him. And um, he gave her the impression that it was something he just could not talk about. Right. And so she didn't explore. If you make it look like a sore subject and then somebody can't press you for details and can't catch you slipping and find out that you're cheating on your wife. Correct. Hate to call it a smart strategy, but, you know, in that case, I guess it would be considered... Smart strategy if you're, he, you know. And and he reminded me, and some of the things that I've, I've read about him over the years, he kind of reminds me of Jody Arias, Dahlia DiPolito, uh, and a couple of other people out there. You know, if, he's, if his lips are moving and sound is coming out, he's probably lying. Right. Okay, I can see that. You know, I mean, don't don't take anything he says without some corroboration. Um, or as Judge Millian says, I wouldn't believe him if his tongue came notarized. <laughs> so, you know, so. we got up through December 9th where he tells uh, Amber that, you know, his wife, he uh, lost his wife. Didn't necessarily, like you said, didn't necessarily say she was dead, 
but more like she was right. missing. And then now uh, let's go on to the night of December 23rd or the days of December 23rd and 4th, 2002. What exactly, exactly happened on those days? Because if I'm remembering correctly, he told police he was on a fishing trip, right? And we right. come to find yeah. out that right. obviously he was uh, out on the water all right, but he was trying to get rid of two, uh, well, one body, right? Correct. Uh, on December 23rd, Lacey had a uh, an OBGYN appointment, and everything was progressing fine with her pregnancy. She had been complaining, however, about her feet swelling. Um, she was getting tired, out of breath, dizzy, uh, and actually nauseous or nauseated uh, while when she did a lot of walking. So she had probably been curtailing her uh, her activity walking for about a month because the the further into her pregnancy she got the worse it got you know where she could not go as far without having you know issues. Um, she also went to a yoga class and everything was fine. She and Scott went to her sister's salon, and her sister cut Scott's hair. Uh, They invited the sister for pizza, but she was meeting a friend, so she declined, and they went home. About 8.30, Lacey's mom spoke to her on the phone, and Mm -hmm. that is the last time anyone besides Scott saw heard from or talked to Lacey was about eight thirty nine o'clock on December 23rd. Okay. December 24th, they were going to be going to her mother's for for Christmas Eve. And Lacey was, they needed to pick up a present that Amy had ordered at Bella Farms. Uh, Lacey had planned some uh, errands to fix something to bring to dinner. Uh, but she never got there. When Scott came home, she wasn't there. Uh, the dog was found in the backyard with his leash on, the Mackenzie, which is, who was a golden retriever. Uh, and Mackenzie had been put in the yard by a neighbor at about 10, 10, 18, 10, 20, 10, 25 that morning. Right. And that's where Scott found the dog. When he got home at 4.30 or 5 o'clock. Now, the the thing with Scott, he had been, he had gone to the Berkeley Marina to fish. He came home. His wife isn't there. Her purse, her keys, her cell phone are all there. And several people told police that Lacey does not go anywhere without her cell phone, especially at eight months pregnant. Right. Uh, the Definitely other thing not. that was kind of hard to believe was Scott going so far away to fish uh, because the Berkeley Marina, I think, is about two hours from Modesto. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like a four-hour round trip. And uh, December... Okay. 
fishing on San Francisco Bay in a 14-foot boat does not sound like a very uh, pleasing prospect. Absolutely not. Let's, Let's just look at this logically. If your wife's eight months pregnant, why would you want to be two hours away from her just in case? Correct. Correct. And now that's one of the things that, you know, has never really made sense is why he would go so far. And in Modesto, there were plenty of freshwater uh, bodies of water where he could have taken the boat and gone fishing there, and he would have been 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes from home. Um, Now, another thing is he had bought the boat shortly after telling Amber Fry about losing his wife. And he hadn't told anybody in the family about it. Yes. And he hadn't told anybody about it. And Lacey hadn't told anybody about it. And there's no evidence that he ever discussed it with Lacey. And it's a major purchase. Um, So, again, that's kind of... Uh, questionable. Uh Uh-huh. And so he gets home, he eats some cold pizza, he takes a shower, he puts some clothes in the the washer, and then he's like, oh, Lacey's not here. So he calls her mom, and he doesn't say, hey, is Lacey with you? He says, "Uh, Mm -hmm. Lacey's missing. And it's like hmm. he's saying, oh, it's raining. Of course, Lacey's mother, Ms. Ron Gransky, her whole family was beside themselves. And he was like, yeah, okay, it's, you know, just another day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some things that night when the police came to take the missing person's reports. Um one detective was checking his vehicle, and as he opened the door, he bumped, or he was checking Lacey's vehicle, and as he opened the door, he bumped Scott's truck. And Scott uh-huh. pulled the glove out and says, put that so you don't ding the door. Like he was worried about his truck or, or her car, one or the other. And he didn't right. throw out the time that she was missing, he didn't really show a lot of interest in finding out what was going on with police. Sharon Rocha, Brent Rocha, Ron Gransky, Dennis Rocha, all those all those family members, Amy Rocha, you know, they were constantly trying to get in touch with police and passing on leads and asking them if they had any leads and what was going on and wanting to know. And and Scott, even when there was a sighting of Lacey in Washington State, he never even called the police in Washington State or the police in Modesto to find out what was going on. He didn't call when bodies washed up to find out what was going on. He just had no interest in... And most people are missing, especially missing persons. I mean, they will call every day. to keep up with what's going on and to make sure that the detectives aren't moving on to something else and forgetting about their loved one who is missing. So, uh, and 
another thing, and we talked about this, I think when we were talking about the case kind of in general, um, he tried everything he could to avoid the media. When Lacey's family had a press conference, he would not sit up on the podium with them. He would not uh-huh. speak to reporters. He would not, you know, involve himself. He didn't want his image or his name any way associated with the search for Lacey. He said, oh, I want the focus to be on Lacey, not me. But the truth is he didn't want Amber Fry to see him and figure out that his wife was missing. Well, she did. Uh, I think the friend that introduced him realized that he was the Scott Peterson with the wife missing, and she immediately uh-huh. told Amber. And um, that was when Amber, she did, she did the right thing. She reached out to police, and she said, I've been having an affair with him since November. And they came down to talk to her, and they asked her if she would start taping the calls, and she said, sure. And she did. And, uh, you know, one of the detectives said they were there one of the first calls, and he said, she was a pro. She did not give any, and you can listen to, you know, listen to the calls, listening to her voice and listening to Scott's voice. He had no idea. Uh-huh. I mean, he had absolutely no idea that, uh, and, and of course there, there also were, there were authorized phone tabs for Scott Peterson. And because once the affair came out, mm-hmm. that once the affair came out, that was, you know, that was enough probable cause to start really, you know, looking into this guy. And he was under surveillance too, at right. different times. There's one in particular that you mention or that you point out is a New Year's Eve call to Amber. Um, yeah. What about that stands out? Well, that stands out because Scott was at a vigil that was being held for Lacey in the, I think it was in the Loma Park, where Uh it was believed, because that's what Scott told people, that she had gone missing from, walking the dog. And Uh um, he was at that vigil. But he had told Amber that he would have, he would be going spending Christmas in Maine with his family, and then he said he was traveling in Europe. And so New Year's Eve, he was in Paris. And so oh, yeah. he calls Amber up, and he's telling her, oh, my goodness, New Year's Eve in Paris. It's amazing, all the fireworks at the Eiffel Tower, and they're playing American pop songs. The hell? Right, right. You know, and and my reaction would have been, really? You expect me to buy that? You know, I don't hear the of European, you know, sirens. Right. Absolutely. Of course, it would have required me to do the math to figure out what time it was in 
Paris when he's supposedly calling me, and he's calling her right around midnight in California, which Lord only knows how many, you know, how many, how many things you have to subtract and ones have to get carried and math. So, but that one is just, and it's the most egregious. You know, he's at this vigil for Lacey. He can't just wait and call Amber when he gets home. Right. And by this point, Amber knew, right? Oh, yeah, she knew. She knew that he was, he was the Scott Peterson with the wife who's missing in Modesto. And she was by this time working, you know, recording the calls for police. But, um, and I, but I believe that at that time, she was not letting him know that she knew who he really was. She was just playing along. Right. Absolutely. And when, when the, when the National Enquirer had found out about the relationship and was going to break it. That was when police decided, okay, no more undercover for Amber. And so they had a press conference and Amber announced herself and they informed the the Lacey's family about the affair. Um, And that immediately, you know, turned – Lacey's family supported Scott and they were angry at the attention being focused on Scott because – as a spouse, he is the natural prime suspect. Right. And Scott didn't help himself because cagey. He would give the appearance of cooperation with police, but then he would reach a certain point and say, well, I, I have to talk to my attorney about that to kind of back off. Yeah. He wasn't doing himself and a favor. No, no. And then once the affair broke, then he tried to do damage control by giving interviews. And in these interviews, it was just lie after lie after lie. And that's where I was Um, about to go. I was about to say you mentioned that he, you know, intertwined kind of with Casey and Casey Anthony, I mean, in that, you know, yeah. he, he was a well-known, you know, liar. He could tell lies with the best of them and not feel bad about it. Correct. Correct. Um, you know, the lies he told Amber about uh, not being married and then losing his wife and then being in Paris on New Year's Eve, traveling at Christmas uh, in Maine with his family and, uh traveling in Europe, all those, those were all lies. Um, the lies with police, he, uh, he told police that when he left the house, Lacey was wearing black pants and a white shirt. Uh-huh. Um, now, when Lacey was at her sister's salon the night before, she was wearing a black shirt with a pair of tan-colored or stone-colored pants or cream-colored pants. Um, And so, and I think he was giving description of something that she wasn't wearing to try and throw police off. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let's see, and it, it, it's you know he he would try to change cars without registering the new car in his name, and at one point he bought a vehicle and used a driver's license with his mother's name on it from Florida. And the guy asked him, uh, what is this, like a, a, you know, a French name or something? He said, no, it's more like a boy named Sue, because his mother's name is Jacqueline. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have used his dad's name, Lee. Right. But he, and right. he had a Florida driver's license in the name Jacqueline Peterson. Hmm. He bought fake diplomas off the internet. Uh, and then the lying to police, when they, well, it wasn't really lying, it was asking, when police asked what he was fishing for, he had to think about it, and then he would say, ah, sturgeon. Well, it's the wrong time of year for, to fish for sturgeon, and the equipment that he had was not the right kind of equipment to fish for sturgeon. Or maybe it was striped bass. Uh, wrong time of year and wrong equipment again. Right. So, and, and, you know, a fisherman, what were you fishing for? They could tell you in two seconds, and they would have had all the right equipment in their boat. Um, They found fishing lures in Scott's boat that were in the packaging. No, he wasn't at all. And he also told other people that he had played golf that day all day. Mm-hmm. And said nothing about fishing. I think he intended to, to use golf as his alibi, but then he had had to uh, buy a parking pass for the Berkeley Marina. And that would have been a piece of documentary evidence that could be traced back to him. And so he had to abandon the golf uh alibi and go right Berkeley Marina uh and one of the other things he said something along the lines of it was it was too cold and rainy to golf that day but it's not too cold and rainy to be out on San Francisco Bay right in the middle of in an open 14 foot boat I mean the boats are relatively stable but they're they're he wasn't a real fisherman. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know fishermen and hunters that, you know, they'll, they'll, but I also know golfers that, you know, it's thundering and lightning and they're still out there swinging at the ball. It's like, mm-hmm. get in here before you get struck by lightning, dumbass. Right. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. God is going to, God is going to call your gene pool. <laughs> uh. So, but, you uh, know, we, we've talked about the uh, lies, and all this eventually leads to they discovered the bodies. And if I'm yeah. remembering correctly, the bodies were in a trash bag, correct? At the bottom of a lake? No. Or at the bottom of the No. Marina? No. The there was a storm of, on or about April twelfth, two thousand three, uh-huh. 
and it dumped a lot of energy into uh, between the wind and the waves into San Francisco Bay. And uh-huh. on April 13th, a an infant's body was found on a beach in R- Richmond near Brooks Island, not far from where Scott said he had been fishing on Christmas right. Eve. There was debris. There was um, like a, a cement bag from a contractor that had probably gone into the bay from a barge or a bridge construction project um, that was near the body, but the body wasn't actually inside any bags. The body was open. There was also uh, some kind of plastic, not they call it rope or string, but it wasn't, it, it it was like debris that had gotten wrapped around Connor's neck. But that was probably from the waves, the action motion of the body in the water, and the proximity of debris to the body as it was carried to the shore. And then the following day, a woman's body was found some ways down from where Connor was found, uh, not quite on the beach, and both of those bodies were determined by DNA to be Lacey and Connor. And unfortunately, Lacey's body had been in the bay longer and had suffered um, some a lot of deterioration from the time in the water. And so her... I think her arms and lower legs were missing, our lower arms and lower legs. Her head was missing. Her neck was missing. All of her internal organs were missing. And she was not wearing black pants. She right. was wearing tan, stone, or cream-colored pants. And a bra. And everything was in its normal position of wear. So, right. Um, that was... And her sister identified the shirt she'd been wearing. My personal theory has always been that something, the night of the 23rd, just set Scott off and he lost it. And she was probably getting ready for bed, and he killed her. And then, oh, hell, what am I going to do now? And so then he came up with the idea of uh, burying her in the bay, uh, dumping her in the bay. Although there is evidence on his computer that at the time he told Amber Fry that his wife was missing, within days of doing that, he was looking at charts and maps of the bay and current mm-hmm. and things like that. And then of course, purchasing the boat. Of course. So, so but he, it may be that the night of the 23rd is when he got the ball to, to do it. That he'd been planning it, oh, thinking yeah. about it, how he's going to do it. And then 
he did it. And I don't know, you may have been thinking about... By the time he had the boat, by the time he bought the boat, it was pretty much in his mind what he was going to do with said boat. Uh, Yeah, I think so. Uh, Maybe he was thinking about taking her out on the boat, you know, making it capsize and having her have a tough time swimming in the bay and, you know, an accidental an accidental death. Right. Which he probably, of course, you know, if she, she seems like a pretty smart woman. I mean, she probably would have looked at him when he said, let's go for a ride the boat, and she would have been no effing way. Right. I'm too, I'm too pregnant for that crap. Yeah, especially um, if she knows she can't swim, she'd probably look at him like he had two heads. Well, it's it's not that she couldn't swim. She probably could swim, but with the body weight and the uh, the baby weight, and also her getting tired and uh, having trouble walking and things like that, it would just been more difficult for her to rescue herself in that condition than if she were, you know, prior to getting pregnant. Because uh-huh. they had a pool in their backyard, and right. I, I think she did swim quite often. But, you know, when you're that pregnant, a lot of things that you normally do very easily don't come easy. So Standing up, sitting games. down, tying so shoes, those kind of things. Right. Well, Scott was under surveillance. And he uh-huh. had a tendency Already? while he was under he was under surveillance intermittently um, from probably January when the affair broke until uh, April when he was okay. arrested. And but he would play cat and mouse games with the surveillance. He knew he was being followed. He would drive erratically. He would walk up to the cars and knock on the window and say, what agency are you with? And when they looked at him and said, I don't know what you're talking about, he would be like, yeah, right, and then walk away. He just a little mm-hmm. brat attitude. And um, uh, there was a period uh, after the bodies were found where he was, switching cars and renting cars. And and that's something else that leads to my conclusion that he is guilty is when they were searching the bay in January, December 2002, early 2003, he was taking surreptitious trips to Berkeley Marina in rented cars and telling people he was in other places at the time. And then he was not speaking to anybody at Berkeley Marina. He wasn't speaking to police. He wasn't speaking to Harbor Master. He wasn't speaking to other boaters. He wasn't getting out of the car and speaking to anybody. He was just monitoring the, uh, the, the search out on the bay which at that time of year is treacherous, is putting it mildly. Um, but he wasn't, you know, and he made five trips 
to monitor the progress of the search of the bay. Uh-huh. And there's no reason for him to do that, but that he was just making that sure that they didn't find anything. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so he played these cat and mouse games with the surveillance people. Um, and, you know, the family has all kinds of explanations for everything. So the cars and the rental cars, that was because the press was hounding him. Even uh-huh. though he knew he was he knew it was police surveillance because he wouldn't ask what newspaper he wouldn't ask what agency are you from he was asking what law enforcement agency are you a state are you federal he wasn't asking are you National Enquirer are you ABC News Good Morning America Today Show no he was asking them what law enforcement agencies they worked for uh huh so um. Again, that you know, consciousness of guilt. Right, absolutely. And <laughs> I'm I mean, just going to call it that. That shows that he knew he was, you know, in some trouble. Yeah. That right there. That right there shows that he knew they were on to him. But Lisa, we're going to mm-hmm. take a quick commercial break. We're about at the uh, halftime mark here. So uh, when we come back, we're going to pick that up. Uh, I believe he's going to be arrested when we first get back, and then we're going to get into the trial and everything subsequent to this. I believe actually, following up on last week, I believe actually there was a law that uh, was made after this one as well uh, that was signed in by President uh, Bush at the time. So that'll be something also that we uh, will get into a little bit of but uh we'll be right back with more clearing convincing right here on talk radio 49 are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories then check out the guys at sub on vapors with daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices they will surely become your one-stop shop Ray and the guys at Subone Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Subone Vapors. Vape it like you built it. We're back. Yes, ma'am, we sure are. And 
You know, that first hour passed by real fast. But, you know, definitely interesting to look at what happened pre-arrest with everything that, you know, Scott did. Scott absolutely acted completely, completely, you know, at least off base. Something wasn't right with him, you know, prior to him even being arrested. You know, obviously he was, you know, a complete douchebag. And uh, we all found that out prior to even the arrest. So when was he actually arrested and charged with the uh, murders? Around April 18, 2003, right after Lacey and Connor's bodies were identified. Mm-hmm. Um, because the bodies washing up, he was fishing near Brooks Island. The bodies were washed up near Brooks Island. It's a little bit too coincidental to uh, to just be, uh, you know, a coincidence. So uh, they right. got an arrest warrant for him pretty quickly. And, you know, his first words after some cat and mouse games again with surveillance, uh, his first words when he was arrested was, it isn't Connor and Lacey, is it? I mean, I remember this has wow. been this had been all over the news, and he doesn't know it's Connor and Lacey, or he doesn't want to believe it. Who knows? Because again, the man is an enigma. And the interesting thing in his in the car when he was found and arrested. He was going to a golf course in San Diego. He'd moved down there with his parents. Uh-huh. He had $15,000. He had a knife. He had some Viagra pills. He had camping equipment and camping books. He had uh, directions to Amber Fry's work and also children's books and clothes to last several weeks. So the logical inference from all that is that he was fixing to go on the lamb. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, or honestly, looking at it, he had directions to Amber's stuff. It sounds like he may have been uh, getting ready to do something to Amber. Well, he may have been... There may have been evil intent, or he may have been planning to kidnap her and her daughter. True. Because she and her daughter were going to replace Lacey and Connor. But, you know, her daughter wasn't going to really be his. And he wasn't uh-huh. going to be tied to Amber, so he could, you know, he could walk away whenever he wanted. And I think that's what right. he wanted. He didn't want to be tied <laughs> down. Correct. Correct. Okay. That definitely, you know, uh, makes sense as far as, you know, from his thought process. Uh, You know, obviously there's a lot that goes into a trial. So how quickly did they actually get this to trial after the arrest? Wasn't it like something like uh, early 2004? Yes. Uh, They started in... I believe jury selection started in May of 2004. 
Mm-hmm. So they went to trial about 13 months after he was arrested. Uh, Mark Garagos, who is a well-known criminal defense attorney in Southern California, uh, he came on board almost immediately in May of 2003. Right. He was the one who defended um, Michael Jackson, correctly? Correct? No, I don't believe – I think that that was a different attorney. Because I think the Michael Jackson and Scott Peterson trials were going on almost at the same time. And, in fact, Garagos wanted to move the trial to Orange County in Southern California Mm -hmm. because that would be more convenient to him. Talk about narcissism. And um, that didn't fly. The trial was moved from Stanislaus County to um, uh, San Mateo County. Mm-hmm. I may not have those county names right. Um, but uh, the uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to double check. It was moved to Redland, California, which is a community that is demographically similar to Modesto and Stanislaus County. Mm-hmm. And there was a preliminary hearing in the winter of 2003 uh, at which Garagos sought to have the whole case thrown out, but that didn't work. So um, they they went to trial in May of 2004. Mhm. Okay. So, uh tell me the prosecution, you know, it's cut and dry. They say I'm assuming here they say, you know, he took him out, dropped the bodies off in the uh marine, a marina and bingo bango, correct? Well, it wasn't that cut and dry. They they had no physical evidence at the house okay. to uh, to prove that anything had happened. That's not that, you know, uh, Scott had plenty of time to clean up before alerting police. And he did not report Lacey missing. Her stepfather reported her missing. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they, you know, they didn't find any any evidence. They did find his blood on a comforter in the bedroom and I think on a couple of spots in his truck. Right. Um, And he had a a cut on his hand. But he claimed he cut his hands all the time, whatever he did as a fertilizer salesman. Um, Mm -hmm. But they, they just had the circumstances. The body wasn't wearing what he described when it was found. Um, they also didn't have a definitive cause of death of Lacey mm-hmm. um, okay. because, you know, all of her internal, internal organs were gone. Her head and her neck were gone, so they badly, couldn't examine them for anything. She was anything. badly decomposed. Right. And they believe that what most likely happened was that for a period of time, 
Lacey's body was in the water and over time decomposition and uh, exposure to debris and other things in the in that environment led to uh, Connor kind of being expelled uh-huh. from the uterus. The body. And right. that's why his body was not as badly, it was not as badly decomposed as Lacey's was. Probably because for a period of months, he had been protected within the body. Okay. Um, so, and you know they had, like I said, they had. He said he went fishing in Berkeley, uh in in San Francisco Bay, off Brooks Island, where the bodies were found was near the marina and near uh, Brooks Island. You could see Brooks Island, I believe, from where the bodies were found. Um, and a marine hydrologist. Mm-hmm. testified that based on his calculations the most likely place where Connor's body was was near where Bo- Connor's body came to be in the water was near Brooks Island. He couldn't really he, he used different formulas and things like that wind, current, etc. data and he could say high probability of where Connor's body came to be in the bay, based backtracking from where he washed up. But he couldn't really do that with Lacey's body. But again, that was near Brooks Island, where Scott said he was fishing. Mm-hmm. And then they had the, uh, you know, the lack of evidence of Lacey being alive after December 23rd. Uh, Now, one of the criticisms, the defense investigators turned over names of witnesses who claimed to have seen Lacey walk in the neighborhood with McKenzie. And those witnesses were interviewed, but their time frames were inconsistent with other information that the police had. For example, the neighbor who found Mackenzie in the Peterson's front yard with her leash on and who Uh put her in the backyard. She had receipts to show exactly what time that would have been or to narrow down within 15 minutes when that would have been. And some of those dog walking witnesses claim to have seen Lacey and Mackenzie after that. The prosecution also had several women who, at the same time, were pregnant and walked their dogs in that park or in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that those could have been the women that were seen walking, the pregnant women walking their dogs. Because none of the witnesses who claimed to have seen Lacey actually knew Lacey. And they didn't stop to talk to her and determined that it was Lacey Peterson. They just said, I saw a pregnant woman walking her dog, and Lacey was not the only pregnant woman in that area during that time. Um, So more than proving, I think, what was, they kind of proved what wasn't. 
There were a few other things, though. One of the things, two weeks with of, after Lacey disappeared, Scott sold her range, her Land Rover, her vehicle. He sold it. Right. He looked into selling the house, furnished. He ordered porn wow. from Dish Network. Wow. And those three things say he knew Lacey wasn't coming back. I would agree. I mean, you know. I would uh, agree. I mean, obviously. I just don't find any other way. Yeah. Um, Of course, I'm sure he'd say, oh, no. She knew I always wanted porn, and she told me that for Christmas I could have porn. (laughs) <laughs> of course of course So, and that's why I think the, that's one of the reasons I think he has a sex addiction because the porn channel he uh, ordered he ordered the Playboy channel and that one wasn't explicit enough for him so he canceled that and he ordered the most explicit porn channel that Dish Network offered Okay. So So that's why I suspect he had a sex addiction. How does the the counteract all this circumstantial evidence? Well, they, 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 well, um, I I say harped, really the wrong word. They focused on trying to discount the investigation. Uh, saying that it was a rush to judgment, that they decided the night of December 24th, Scott was their their suspect, and they ignored anything that didn't fit with that paradigm uh, in their investigation, Um, which isn't necessarily true because when the defense investigators found the dog-walking witnesses, the police went to the dog-walking witnesses, and they interviewed them and determined that they probably did not see Lacey. They probably saw some other pregnant woman. Um, And they found other pregnant women who walked their dogs in the neighborhood. Um, But that was the thing. And, you know, just basically trying to discredit every investigator, uh, every expert, every, every facet of the prosecution's case. Um, mm-hmm. Including one of the one of the parts of the prosecution's case was uh, an estimate of fetal age of Connor, because the defense's theory was that Lacey was kidnapped by burglars, and or was kidnapped by Satanists who wanted her baby. And um, so the prosecution offered a couple of experts, and basically they they knew from Lacey's records and her last visit with her doctor the approximate fetal age for Connor. Mm -hmm. And so they estimated the fetal age at the time he died and found that it was probably somewhere between December 23rd and 
December 25th or something along those lines. Um, and, right. of course, the defense's theory was that his date of death was as only could only have been as early as December 29th and could have been as late as January uh, 4th or 5th. Mm-hmm. Or something along those lines. So, and it's you know it's a dispute. Um, you know, late this Connor would have died within a short time of Lacey dying. Right. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. A and survive without his mother at that point. Correct. And um, so. What they tried to do was create doubt that maybe Lacey was kidnapped and held captive and then died. And then since everybody knew where Scott was fishing that day, they went to that area and dumped the bodies in that area to frame him. Mm-hmm. And the jury just did not – I don't think they found that very – Persuasive, right, and a lot not, of the because... one of the you know the big flaw in the prosecution's case is they don't know when, how, or why. Uh, that's not due to them not trying to find that information out. It's due to the fact that Scott Peterson desecrated his wife's body by dumping it in the bay, and he got lucky that it wasn't found for nearly six months. Right. Right. I mean, you're right. Obviously, they didn't buy it because they returned the verdict of guilty. And uh, who comes up with it in California? Is it the uh, judge, or does the jury recommend a sentence? The the jury recommends that, as in, I think, all states, it's you have the guilt and innocence phase. If there's a conviction, then you have the sentencing phase, the penalty phase. And uh-huh. so the penalty phase is put on, and, and that's more the defense puts that on. They put on witnesses to the character of the defendant and mitigation evidence that uh, they hope will persuade a jury to spare the defendant's life and not order a death sentence. Um, And then the prosecution basically gets a chance to rebut that information. Um, And a lot of the sentencing, the penalty phase, they do have that mitigating evidence that they get from... Family, relatives, doctors, whomever. But they also still have the circumstances of the crime from the guilt and innocence phase. And they can rely on that. Right. In weighing their sentence. And so but did they, they did rec- come back. They They came back with a death sentence, yes. Okay. And after... Um, after a motion for new trial, the judge sentenced him pursuant to the jury's recommendation to death. Okay. Okay. 
So then the direct appeal you said didn't start until 2014, correct? 2012 was when his appellate brief was filed. Yes. Again, that may have been administrative delays in preparing the transcript from the trial. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not really familiar with that process in California, but it may take a while. And I think probably the transcripts prepare the, the attorneys for the defendant and the attorneys for the state review it. And if there are any problems, they have to file motions to supplement the record or to correct the record or things of that nature. And, you know, we talked about Jody Arias, her, you know, her appellate transcripts took three years, two and a half years Mm -hmm. just to get her appellate, just to get her trial transcripts completed. So, uh, it can be a, a daunting process. Right. Right, absolutely. And so what were the major points on the direct appeal? Right. Uh this is a, it's it's still pending. Uh the mm-hmm. appellate briefs have been filed by the state and Peterson. Um I believe he may be filing a reply brief. I'm not sure. But now that right. the briefs are filed, the California Supreme Court will de- decide if they want to have oral argument. Okay. And they'll set it for oral argument at some point in the future. I do monitor his family has set up an appellate page, and I do monitor that page for anything new. So, uh if we have an update show, we may we may be able to update that there's an oral argument schedule or something along those lines. Um, so his the issues is completely that supporting still Scott Peterson, his family does not want to believe that he did this. Uh, they believe that he's innocent. They believe that he was railroaded. They believe that he was treated unfairly. That he couldn't get a fair trial. That the media. Uh, destroyed any chance he might have of getting a fair trial. And while Mm -hmm. there was a lot of media attention outside the courthouse, the judge actually did a pretty good job of keeping the media out of the courtroom during the trial. Right. Uh, you know, the, the autopsy reports for Lacey and Connor are sealed. They are not public record. Nobody's ever going to get their hands on those. Okay. Because even if you even if you are a representative of one of the parties, if that is released by you, there's going to be a problem. And it's going to trace back to you and you're going to lose your job. And so all the pictures and all the the autopsy reports are sealed. They're not public record to keep the media out of that aspect of the case. Um, But the issues that he's appealing are uh, prior to even talking to prospective jurors, the judge with the party's input 
put together questionnaires for the prospective uh-huh. jurors to answer. The pool was around 1,200 people. Okay. And then based on the answers on that questionnaire, they were able to determine people who had hardship that could not serve on the jury. For example, if they worked at Burger King and they weren't going to be paid for hours they didn't work, they couldn't afford to be in a six-month trial day after day after day because they wouldn't be able to support their families. Right. Um, There's also something, and it's controversial, the defense bar doesn't like it, Anti uh, uh, death penalty opponents don't like it, but if you have a, a prospective juror who says, "I don't believe in the death penalty, I think it's wrong, I could never consider it as an option in sentencing," uh-huh. then that person is not eligible to serve on a jury in which a death penalty is sought. I would agree with that, though. Like, I don't understand, like, that obviously shows bias, so. Well, the, I guess the rationale, and and there are some, quote, studies that say that death-qualified juries are more likely to convict Mm -hmm. and sentence someone to death than jurors who have doubts about the death penalty. Um, I don't necessarily buy that. And there are sometimes, if a juror's answers are are equivocal, the court is required to at least question them and try to uh, get clarification of the answers prior to dismissal. Uh, but in this case, there were several jurors who were discharged. However, the summary of their questionnaire responses are not equivocal and they're not inconsistent. And a couple of them say, no, I could not follow the law and sentence someone to death. Okay. So that is, and that's an issue. The, the California Supreme court is going to, uh, to decide they've had a couple of cases quite recently where they've reversed the sentencing phase because jurors were dismissed without being questioned. However, those jurors gave equivocal answers or inconsistent answers. They said they didn't believe in the death penalty or opposed the death penalty, but then they said they could follow the law. And so the California Supreme Court found that they should have been questioned. But also... It's not real clear in the opinion that I read at what point in the process that occurred. In this case, the dismissals were done prior to voir dire even starting. They had uh-huh. twelve hundred they had a pool of twelve hundred people and they were basically calling that pool down to something manageable to conduct voir dire. Mhm. Right. Um, because having 1,200 people come to the courthouse every day, you know, you can only fit 
300 at a time into your courtroom. And even a pool that large, there is always a risk of one potential juror making a statement that taints the entire pool. Okay. So you want to yeah. you want to get your you want to get your pool down to a more manageable number before you start voir dire. And so we'll we'll see how that turns out. There are a couple people on the Scott Peterson pages on Facebook that um, believe very strongly that this alone will be a, a basis of reversal. Although more likely than not, it will only be a basis to reverse the sentencing, not the conviction. Okay. Okay. And then so what about the, the second. Uh-huh. Yeah, the second issue uh, that he is challenging was a second request for change of venue was made shortly before the trial, and that was denied. And so he's challenging the denial of that second change of venue. And I believe also challenging the refusal to to change venue to a jurisdiction in Southern California. Uh Uh-huh. So, and then they used a tracking dog in several places. One of the places was at the um, at the warehouse where Scott kept his boat, and the dog alerted on the boat. And then at the Berkeley Marina, there were two dogs. One dog followed a track and didn't find anything, and a second dog from it starting from a different point at the marina, followed a trail to the end of a pier and a pylon. Mm-hmm. Out into the bay. And that evidence of that dog's track was admitted. Um, basically, Lacey's body was brought in to the marina, went down the dock, and then went off into the bay. Um, it was more corroborative than anything else. I, I don't think that it was, while Peterson's attorneys portray it as the linchpin of the, of the prosecution's case, it really wasn't the linchpin of the prosecution's case. And even without right. that corroborative evidence, because the bodies washed up on you know, the beach right near there. Right. Uh, and interestingly enough, the dog tracker did not know that Scott had been at the marina. They were just brought to the marina and said, you know, take the scent, you know, take the scent article, see, see what happens. And so, but they're challenging the qualifications of the dog or the qualifications of the handler. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, You know, I personally, I think that the dog evidence is they're barking up the wrong tree. 
um, mm-hmm. rather than drawing more attention to it, they should just let it go. Right. And then they're also challenging the expert testimony that was offered uh, about the movement of, of Lacey and Connor's bodies in San Francisco Bay. And that was okay. the hydrologist that, you know, basically said, yeah, Connor's body was somewhere around Brooks Island, and then it came to Richmond, and then it washed up on the beach. Um, and then the defense had made a video with a boat that they claimed was identical to Scott's boat, although no identifying information could be seen in the video because they covered that all with tape. Um, mm-hmm. And the boat in the video had been modified. It had a plank with seats on top of it, which would change the center of gravity on the boat and affect the stability. And right. um, at the beginning of the experiment that the, the defense was doing, uh, the boat was already riding low in the water, so kind of wonder. And then the method that the individual portraying Scott was using to dump a a replica that was supposed to be representative of uh, Lacey's body, the way he was doing it was not, not the natural way a person who knows boats would try to dump a body. And um, they wanted that video played for the jury. The judge ruled that it couldn't be played for the jury. But he did say if you want to reconduct this with the defendant's boat, you can do that, but the prosecution has to be present to observe that. And uh-huh. so Mark Garagos said, no, I'm not going to do that. Which to me says the boat was not really like Scott's boat. The conditions that they were using were not really um, representative of Scott and or Lacey. And, you know, the method that they were using was designed to make the boat either tip or sink to try and show a video to the jury and say, see, it can't be done, it can't be done. So they're challenging that. And then the jurors, when they examined Scott's boat, a couple of them got into it while it was on a trailer and started kind of moving back and forth, rocking it. The judge stopped that and said, the stability on the trailer has nothing to do with the stability in the water. So you all need to quit. Absolutely. (laughs) And um, juries can do that. And the judge can tell them whether they're, you know, whether they're going. Of course, Scott wanted to reopen, uh, or his attorneys wanted to reopen evidence after that and and present additional evidence because this was toward the end of the, the trial. Um, right. And the judge said no. So they're challenging that. Um, and then they had an issue with juror number five. I don't know if you've seen this. But one morning on the way into court, a juror was in the security line with Brent Rocha, Lacey's brother. 
Mm-hmm. And they spoke to one another. Which is a huge no-no. Both for the juror and for Brent Rocha. The court inquired and and determined that, you know, what they said to each other wasn't really, uh, you know, a problem. So just don't do it again. Be more careful when you're coming in and out of court. Uh, Because sometimes the jurors know who people are, but the family members don't necessarily know who the jurors are. I would agree with that. And um, I know during Dahlia DiPolito's trial, whenever witnesses were leaving the courtroom, when the, after the jury had been excused to go to lunch or take a break or whatever, the judge would always say, look, would you please hand, hang back and wait, give them a chance to clear out before you go into the hallway and leave the courtroom, which is a good practice because it does prevent accidental contact between a juror and party witness or attorney. Right. And uh, but then they re- the judge received reports of some other problems with juror five. He was talking to other jurors about how the media was portraying him, and he was okay. talking about things his girlfriend was telling him about media stories about the case. And um, they interviewed him, and he was not forthcoming. And seemed to be, you know, they asked him, did you do this? And he said, I don't recall that I did it. Which isn't really, did you do it? Yes. It's a yes or no question. But he said, well, not that I recall. That's kind of a waffly answer. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to admit that I did it, but I'm not going to lie and say I didn't do it. So I'm going to say, well, I don't really recall doing that. And... um they ended up dismissing him because he was he was a he was a problem child on that jury. And then there were complaints about another juror, uh, a reporter attorney working as a commentator, claimed to have been told by a third party uh, a lot of negative information about this juror and reported it to the defense. And then the defense used that to try and get the juror removed, but the uh, it didn't work, and the juror was allowed to remain on the jury. Mm-hmm. And then um, after the conviction, the defense moved to have the jury dismissed and to pick a new jury for the penalty phase. Okay. And the judge denied that request. And that's not a request that you're, that's not something that a defendant is entitled to. Uh, You're generally, you're tried and sentenced by the same jury, even in a bifurcated trial, like a death penalty trial. And um, there was some mitigation evidence that they wanted to present. uh, They wanted to present other death penalty cases and facts of other death penalty cases and testimony from a a former judge about sentences that he uh, passed during his time on the bench, and that was all found to be not relevant. And then they 
went after the whole sentencing scheme in California, right? Like, Correct. Are they challenging hey, they, the whole they, process? Basically, they're they're saying the whole the whole the whole kit and kabang caboodle is uh, unconstitutional. Oh wow! And so they're just um, not leaving any stone unturned. Well, you know, it's it's kind of what what we called uh, in the. Eccles Rule 37 and mm-hmm. the WM3.org page as shotgun defense. Right. Throw it all out there and see if anything hits anything. See what hits. Okay. Or spaghetti defense. Throw it up in the air and see if it sticks. Okay. I can see that. So I know you said the direct appeal hasn't happened yet. Does that mean the post-conviction writ hasn't happened yet as well? Well, no, the post-conviction, pardon me, in California you can actually begin the state post-conviction process while your your conviction and sentence are still on direct appeal. Mm-hmm. And that may be probably because the way their statutes are written, once you develop evidence in that is a post-conviction type situation, you only have a certain amount of time to actually present it to a court. So even if your direct mm-hmm. appeal is still pending, if you have developed evidence that would support uh, a constitutional challenge to your conviction and sentence, you need to go ahead and get it filed. Um, mm-hmm. The time frame for that to move forward through the system is, uh, I'm not really entirely sure. I think the California Supreme Court decides post-conviction writs in death penalty cases. However, the claims in the writ are deemed to be um necessary of further development, more likely than not, the Supreme Court will remand it to the trial court to actually mm-hmm. hold hearings and develop the evidence. But they have filed the writ and the state has responded to the writ and they've raised some additional uh, claims. They've kind of um, bootstrapped claims from the direct appeal into ineffective assistance of counsel claims, as well as constitutional claims. Okay. Okay. So it looks like basically, though, the post-conviction writ is a complete carbon copy, almost, of the direct appeal. Yeah, there are a few differences. One, the first one, the juror bias claim, uh, Mm -hmm. they claim that one of the jurors who has, um, you know, who's been front and center in the media for a little while uh, surrounding the case was a uh, kind of a stealth juror that she got herself on that jury to convict Scott Peterson and sentence him to death. Right. Uh, And the basis for that is that about four years before she was called to sit on the jury in Peterson's case, she had filed an order of protection against a 
former girlfriend of her boyfriend mm-hmm. arising out of some dispute between them. Again, women, if your man is cheating on you, don't be mad at the other woman. Be mad at him. You two put your heads together. You make his life a living hell. Right. Don't go after each other. Go after him. Because nine times out of ten, he lied to her. He lied to her about you. He lied to her about your relationship. So you two put your heads together. Make his life a living hell. I have told you what another woman and I did. (laughs) Right. We reduced that man to tears. I mean, he thought his life was over. So, um, but, uh, and then we both dumped him. That was the most satisfying part of all. I was about to say, I mean, that just sounds like just about the uh, best thing that can happen in those situations. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, when, I mean, even when it happened to me, I wasn't mad at her. I knew the son of a gun had lied to her. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, I wasn't mad at her. I didn't want to fight her. I didn't want to beat her. You know, I I wanted to beat him. <laughs> so, and then they're alleging false evidence with the fetal age and dog scent and and you know movement in the bay evidence as far uh-huh. as uh, Lacey and Connor. And then they're also alleging I... ineffective assistance to counsel uh, in uh-huh. the failure of. Mark Garagos to present better evidence to uh, refute the state's evidence on fetal age, dog scent, and movement in the Bay. Mm-hmm. As well as the uh, failing to present the uh, ex- correct. Ex- yeah, that correct. word, he- evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Exculpatory evidence. Yeah, Mark Garagos made promises and opening that he didn't fulfill during the defense case. Um, uh-huh. And then also uh, there was a burglary at a, a house across the street from uh, Scott and Lacey's house. And at some point, a third party claimed that one of the burglars told him that Lacey saw them burglarizing the house and came over to them and that they threatened her. Mm-hmm. The defense has turned that into a kidnapping and holding Lacey hostage and then driving to San Francisco Bay, which is about two hours from Modesto. Exactly. And dumping her body in the bay based on news reports about where Scott was fishing. And I think oh. in one of the TV specials, Garagos talks about a bridge, that you go to that bridge, Brooks Island is right there, you just dump the body off that bridge. Um, but the problem is, is that the guy didn't say that the burglar confessed to kidnapping and killing Lacey and dumping her body. He only confessed mm-hmm. allegedly to threatening her. And the biggest problem for this particular theory is that the defense knew at trial the identity of the burglars. Mm 
and had actually listed them on a witness list. But obviously elected not to call them. Right. And defense investigators had interviewed the burglars. Now, one of the one of the defense investigators says that when he was interviewing one of the burglars and he said, "Well, what about Lacey? You know, we heard she was she was a tough chick and if she saw you burglarizing that house, she would have come up to you and said something to you. Um, the guy, you know, the, the guy freaked out and said, you don't have any evidence. I didn't do this. You didn't, you don't, you can't put it on me. No, 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 no. And he freaked out. And a guard came in and said, you know, ask the investigator if he was okay. But, uh, you know, a guy serving a pretty hefty sentence for a burglary is probably going to get a bit upset if somebody starts trying to accuse him of murder. Right, absolutely. During the commission of that burglary, because that's a death penalty eligible crime in California. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, they had a chance to put the the burglars, both of them, on the stand, and statements from them that they could portray as evasive or not telling the truth, um, or get them to go on the stand and invoke their Fifth Amendment. And use that to try and say, see, see, they're hiding something. But mm-hmm. um, trying to do it through a third party, making a statement that isn't really, doesn't really equate to kidnapping and murder, doesn't really. I, I don't. I don't think that that's going to uh, work, especially again, because they knew who the burglars were. They knew about the burglary. They had the reports. They had statements that suggested the burglary was on Christmas Eve when the evidence that the police developed said it was on December 26th. And they knew about that dispute in the time frames as well. So I don't think that they're going to have any luck in the uh, post-conviction of developing that as new evidence that that wins him a new trial. And I think that the evidence the police developed is more reliable than, you know, inconsistent statements from people about seeing a safe on the yard on Christmas Eve. So. Right. And when you look at, you know, when you look at one thread you kind of see how it can work. But then when you start to pull the threads together, like the burglary and the dog walking, the problem with those is that they don't agree with the time that Mackenzie was put back in Scott and Lacey's yard by the neighbor. Because they had to have occurred at a time after Mackenzie had already been put back in the yard. The defense tries to argue, well, of course, Lacey then, after the dog was put in the yard, then Lacey took the dog out for a walk. But we have no evidence of that. And so um, there are a lot of threads, but when you start trying to put them together, they just don't, they don't work together. And there's something from one thread that just throws the burglary thread completely off. Right. Or the satanic cult thread. 
And then again, they, they raise the uh, unconstitutional sentencing scheme. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So what is the status currently of the case and, you know, a potential resolution of this case? Well, like I said, this, the California Supreme Court will likely schedule oral argument on the direct appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, when that might be, I don't know how their terms, so I don't know whether they work all year round, whether they work kind of similar to the U.S. Supreme Court there. They start in September, October, and work through June or July, and then they have a significant period of time off during the summer. Um, but like I said, I will monitor the page and keep it po- keep everybody posted as to when oral arguments might be set up. If, if I have updates on, you know, five or six cases, I'll make sure on an episode to say, we're going to talk about these few cases at the end of the show briefly to kind of update people on what's been going on and what's what new developments have occurred. Okay. And, you know, the potential resolution, I really, having read the state's brief, the only issue I'm not entirely sure of is that dismissal of death qualified or non death qualified jurors from the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know how an appellate court is going to look at an issue. And so they may not see it as calling a an excessively large pool to something manageable for Boadir. And um, I think most of the hardship dis- discharges, this is all discretionary as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it may be an abuse of discretion the hardship discharges discharges the people who didn't, you know, speak English as their first language. I don't think there'll be any problem with that. But the death, the non-death qualified jurors, there may be a problem. But it would only result in a new sentencing, not necessarily a, a reversal of the conviction. Right. Because I don't right. think the courts, the courts don't tend to. Um, give much credence to these studies that say death qualified juries convict all of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's what Scott Peterson's attorneys are trying to argue is that the death qualified jury was predisposed to uh, convicting him no matter what the evidence or what, what was presented and then to sentence him to death. And I, I just don't think that that's going to fly. Mm-hmm. Now, it is California, so you never know um, how right, their true. Court of Appeal, their Supreme Court may um, may rule. Um, that is really the only issue, I think, um, you know the rest of the the rest of the problems that they cite uh the the second change of venue I don't think that that's gonna work 
especially being that basically they're saying that he was entitled to a jury of his peers in Southern California because that's where he is from. I don't think that's mm-hmm. And right. um, and you know, really, it's kind of funny because Garagos wants to complain about the media attention in Redland, California, and yet in Los Angeles, you think there's no media there. I mean, did he really think Los Angeles or even Orange County would be blackout? With the media, it's that's like the media capital of the world. Yeah, you definitely ain't lying there. So, um, yeah, no, and I, I don't think you know they're they're not being able to present their their experiment video. No, given the the problems with the video and the fact that they had a chance to repeat the process with the actual boat except that it's that state's evidence so the prosecution has a right to observe the process and not even necessarily to interfere but yeah if they you know if they have a a guy who's over 200 pounds and he's also wearing a 50 pound weight belt and he's Scott Peterson well you know that's not representative of conditions at the time Scott was on the bay because he did weigh almost 200 pounds, but he didn't weigh 250. And if you're going to do an experiment like that, you have to replicate conditions as closely as you can. And you need to be transparent with that. You know, we couldn't find the same brand of boat, but this is the same size, it's the same size engine. You know, the specifications are almost identical within an inch or two. Uh-huh. Um, so. Okay. Right yeah, I, like I said, I, I think the only one is the, the discharge of the jurors, the death qualification uh-huh. is the only one that's, eh, Maybe, but again, it depends on if they look at it as calling an unmanageable number to bring in jurors that Voidir would actually serve some purpose. Because uh-huh. you have somebody whose questionnaire says, I don't believe in the death penalty. I'm strongly opposed to the death penalty. It's wrong. It's immoral. I could never sentence anyone to death you're not going to be able to rehabilitate them. The best defense attorney in the world is not going to be able to rehabilitate them because when they come in and they give all the, quote, right answers, oh, no, I do I do support the death penalty. I think it's necessary. That's going to look a little fishy. Right, right. Well, we're pretty much up to date here. Uh, let's go ahead and get ready for next week. What are we going to be talking about next week, Lisa? Next week is going to be Adnan Syed. Okay. Okay, definitely uh, going to be an interesting case. I know you told me a little bit about it. I'm not as familiar as I've been with the last two cases, but I definitely look forward to getting into that one. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting case. Um, it's been covered by a couple of podcasts and um, been a lot of media attention to it the last two, three years. So it is an interesting case. But again, I'm looking at it from the, not necessarily the media, but the what's been presented in court. Uh-huh. And and what the courts have had to say. Right, right. Well, Lisa, it looks like it's just about time to get out of here. We're in a little bit of overtime. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap this sucker up and put a bow on it. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week for Episode 20, State of Maryland versus Adnan Syed. On January 13, 1999, Hay Min Lee was reported missing by her family. Hay's partially burned body was discovered in Baltimore's Lincoln Park on February 9, 1999, and her ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed, was arrested and charged with a murder on February 28, 1999. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years in February of 2000. Join Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan on Tuesday, September 4th at 8 p.m. Central for a discussion of the case against Syed, the podcast that have focused attention on this case, the new evidence claims that have been made, and the status of Syed's potential retrial, which was ordered by a court of appeals in Maryland in 2016. We hope you have a great week and a safe Labor Day weekend. Don't drink and drive. If you have a few while you're out partying with your friends, call a cab, call an Uber, call a Lyft, call your mama, but do not drink and drive. The life you save could be someone else's. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week.